Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Our destiny as a city, and frankly our destiny as a country, is wrapped up in the extent to which we take ownership over all of our children, collectively. When we only look out for our own, we are in essence turning our backs on having a truly just, equitable, and frankly prosperous city. We will never be a truly great city without a great school system for all children. 65 years after the Supreme Court handed down its landmark ruling on Brown v. Board of Education, many public school districts remain impoverished and by default segregated along racial lines. As superintendent of Richmond Public Schools, Jason Camrus is trying to rally all manner of city stakeholders into propelling the most struggling schools and students out of a dereliction that's been centuries in the making. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based for those who have more than a 401k to manage. Visit them at evoadvisors.com. Joining me in studio, it's a pleasure to have you, Jason Cameras, Superintendent of Richmond Public Schools. He was 2005 National Teacher of the Year. Um, Remember when George W. Bush handed you that award? (laughs) I think it was in the White House lawn or something. He also advised the first Obama campaign on education policy. And as the worm turns, this is amazing. Uh, This week, you were on Cloud9 because one of your teachers, Rodney Robinson, here in the RVA was named National Teacher of the Year. I know. It's just incredible. So out of the gate, tell me me about the background on that, the process, what's involved, how you found out. Yeah. Well, actually, I found out six weeks ago. So I've been sitting on this secret for some time, which has been very, very hard to do. But as folks may remember, he was named Virginia Teacher of the Year a couple months ago, and that puts him in the running for national. And then he was named one of the four finalists. And then yesterday, he won the whole thing. How many candidates were there? Well, it's really out of over 3 million teachers in America. It bubbles up from your local school to your school division to your region, then to the state, then to the finalists, and then to the national. Wow. Yeah. It's really just incredible. And you had to sit on this from six weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> it's been really, really hard. Um, but we wanted to preserve the secret for Rodney so he could get all the attention he deserves. So maybe you've been sustaining on this like, you know, it's like a Super Mario mushroom that has had you personally <laughs> on a high because I see you in the city council chambers and that's kind of the more mundane. You understand that this is a kind of a battle of, of – um, persuasion, of policy, of transparency. There's so many different hands uh, you have to hold. I'm struck by you being you becoming a teacher the first time, I think it was 23, 24 years ago. I heard you give a speech recently. You were at uh, Sousa Middle? Sousa Middle School, yeah. In Washington, yeah. D.C. Yeah. And to go back to the passion of that and actually you know, digging in your fingers and, and getting involved there, but now having to sublimate that into – uh, lobbying people and convincing people and holding hands and dealing with invective. I just want to get your <laughs> thoughts out of the gate. You're a very measured person, but you're not just a teacher anymore. Well, you know, I think I still, in my heart and in my mind, think of myself as a teacher. And I think with that perspective, it really helps inform how I go about doing all these other things that I now have to do. And so I think um, one of the key sort of guideposts when you're a teacher is just thinking about your kids. What do you need for them the next day? How are you planned for them and their needs? And I think when you always have that in the back of your mind and in the front of your mind, it really helps whether you're talking about budgets or policy or whatever the case may be. 
take me back to that year at Sousa Middle, let's say 1996, 1997, yeah. and I just can't get it out of my head because it's seared from the speech I heard you recently give it at uh, Temple Bethel. Um, the Big Mac. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and the student with the Big Mac. Yeah. And what that is a metaphor for. Yeah, I had a student who, um, uh, you know, was a very quiet young man, and one day he asked me for a ride after school, and... Um, I was real surprised by that uh, because I thought he lived uh, close by. In fact, I knew he did. And and he explained to me that he was actually going to live with his grandmother because his mom, who I knew had been struggling with some addiction, had checked into a residential program. So he obviously couldn't live with her. And um, so I took him home that afternoon and, and brought him back in the morning. We did that for a few weeks. And one of those drives home, uh, we're, we're driving down one of the main uh, avenues in, in Southeast DC. And, um, we're coming up on the McDonald's and he turns to me and he says, you know, Mr. Cameras, you look real hungry, which mm-hmm. as your listeners will likely know means I'm hungry. And so we pulled over, we got something to eat. And, um, you know, after a few minutes, I noticed he still had a, a good portion of his meal left. And, you know, I asked him if everything was okay. And he said it was, um, he simply wanted to, take the rest home for his grandmother so that she could have something to eat. And, uh, you know, that, that has stayed with me now for, gosh, over 20 years for so many different reasons. I think, one, it just speaks to the incredible um, grace of our young people. And, you know, so often in urban education, we talk about all the deficits and all the challenges, and um, we don't spend enough time talking about our young people as the human beings that they are and all the incredible qualities that they have. And I think it's really important that we remind folks of that. Um, It also has to stay with me because, you know, this is a story at the end of the 20th century in the richest nation in all of human history. In fact, the capital of the richest nation. We could literally see the Capitol Dome from the windows in my classroom. And... um, and yet you have this situation where you have young people and, and their families facing just unconscionable poverty and disadvantage. And I just think that is, frankly, it's just unacceptable. And, um, and you know, I believe that one of the biggest levers we have to address that is making sure every one of our kids gets an outstanding education. I think pretty much everybody could agree without a great education, you can't live a fully free life in America today. And... Um, and so it's why I've been doing this work ever since and why I'm so committed to it. Do you know what that uh, revelation when you gave that speech sent me back to my um, very happy childhood at Highland Oaks Elementary in North Miami Beach, Florida? I mean, I came to this country as an Iranian immigrant. I had the stupid luck of the kindergarten teacher there, Mrs. Harris, she's now Mrs. Pacheco, um, <laughs> happened to be dating a Persian guy back mm. then and took me under her wing to this day. I mean, I had a book come out a couple of years ago. I thanked her at every book party. She's thanked effusively in the afterward. How lucky was I that someone took me under her wing? And I thrived those first several years. This is a leafy, suburban, you know, Dade County public school uh, with a with very great tax base there. And my parents were very education-minded. But I remember for one thing or another, I don't know, it was a fourth grade problem-solving tournament or we had a field trip. I had to show up early at school one morning, so my dad dropped me off. And I bumped into a friend who took me to uh, breakfast in mm. the cafeteria, which I didn't even know existed. Yeah. And uh, I just remember it was like discovering a new world. It was entirely 
African-American and Hispanic. It was very quiet. People just digging into their cereal. There wasn't really any joy in this. It was about eating. It was about getting cereal that day. And and, and the juxtaposition of that is I do distinctly remember if it wasn't lunch shaming, there were uh, many people who would have to go into a different line at lunch and negotiate with Rosie the cash registers that their balance was paid or that sure. it was free or reduced lunch. And that stands out in hindsight. I think I was too young and naive to appreciate it that you're forcing third graders and fourth graders to um, fight for their their subsistence, and I'm just talking about food. Sure. And so, what your your talk about you know Susa Middle and this student and that Big Mac is heartbreaking for me. You know, I am lucky, and so many other people are lucky to be sent off with a great breakfast in the morning to not have to worry about parents and substance abuse or. Um, getting mugged on the way to the bus or on the way to somewhere. And it goes back to kind of a Maslowian hierarchy. And I think that um, when we look at the school system right now, we're going to get into some of the structural difficulties. When it's left to default of the vagaries of a local, hyper-local tax base and community involvement and upkeep, you'll find, as you did when you came to Richmond, that that certain facilities are in worse than third world conditions. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just reflecting on your. I know that went everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I no, feel but like just... I could, I should give you a psych copay for sharing <laughs> that. But that's where it immediately took me back to. Yeah, you know those experiences, as you just shared, um, are indelible and they they affect you even unconsciously for years. Um, it's actually one of the reasons um, we have universal uh, breakfast and lunch. So uh, it's there's no line for kids who are free reduced and ones who aren't. Everybody has access to it. Um, you know, uh, on the <laughs> on the school funding front, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, most schools in America are funded largely by the locality, city, county, and the state. Federal government kicks in about 10% of most school funding. And so if you live in a state that is wealthy and you live in a locality that is wealthy, your school has a lot of resources. And if you don't, they don't. And um, May I ask you yeah. from a civics lesson, what yeah. was the genesis of this? Does it go back to a federalism rights? Why are certain things codified as being, you know, Medicare, which is a quality policy, which yeah. is decidedly national. Medicaid, I think, was done through state block grants. Who fought to keep uh, – public schooling, primary schooling, you know, formative schooling, a function of localities? Well, it has historically always been a function of localities, and it's been one of the institutions that has um, been consistently sort of protected as a local issue, I think in part because there are strong opinions about how to educate children. And so, um, you know, if you're in California, um, there may be a lot of different opinions than if you're in Texas. And so that has preserved, I think, the the local focus. I will say, you know, through things like Title I and other federal interventions, there has been uh, an effort to make funding more equitable, but it's still nowhere where it needs to be. I'm citing you here in a, a column you wrote for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. According to the National Center on education statistics, Virginia's highest poverty school divisions, which serve large percentages of children of color, receive 8.3% less in per-pupil funding than the state's wealthiest districts. Put plainly, the students who should be getting more are actually getting less. Is this about race? Of course it is. What kind of reaction do you get just in pointing that out? Because this is, as you might notice in your two years here, this is a 
This is a town where things are chalked up to tradition, and they'll say, you know, bless your heart. And you want to get into a talk about the monuments, and it's about something completely different. And it does a very good job of kind of concealing some of the, the, the ugly underpinnings of some of these policies and remnants. Yeah, it's interesting. That piece and similar comments I've made um, have elicited sort of two kinds of responses. On the one end, um, folks have said, hey, thanks for calling that out. That's important. And it's important uh, for white leaders to call that out too, not just to always have that burden rest on leaders of color. And then I've gotten the, um, why are you calling... Uh, why are you calling us racist and chalking this up to racism? It's about so many other things. Um, I hear personal responsibility. Also. Yeah, personal responsibility. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I just think um, that whole notion uh, just frankly ignores the institutional impediments that um, kids of color and low-income kids face every day. I mean, just think about your lunch line example and how that experience likely created within the minds of the young people in that lunchroom um, a mental uh, frame that they were different and less than unconsciously that they then likely carried with them not just that day but throughout their lives and that is incredibly corrosive. There's this, um, uh, you know, idea in the literature of stereotype threat that you, um, you know, a child of color um, feels that uh, he or she will be stereotyped and so then actually underperforms out of anxiety because of the assumed um, stereotype within the classroom. And so imagine if that is the mental burden that you're bringing every day into your classroom, that you have to overcome that just to kind of get to the starting line. And so there are just so many things like that that I think we have to be honest about. And look, (laughs) I think you literally have to be closing your eyes and shutting every history book to deny the fact that the inequity we have in Richmond, Virginia today in 2019 is directly linked to the first enslaved Africans being brought here against their will in 1619. Um, It's incontrovertible that, that there is a line there. Has there been a lot of progress? Of course there has been, but we still live with those inequities today. So how do you go into a place like uh, the Windsor Farms, the Cary Street Corridor, um, some of the posh areas in the fan, and broach things like a property tax increase uh, when, in a very mercenary sense, and I know this sounds taboo, th- the proceeds are not going to their children. Sure. You're almost making an evil missionary case that, listen, this is your civic duty. We all have uh, – an obligation to do this. It's the right patriotic. It's the humanistic thing. I mean, I see so many people in this town and it still blows my mind. And they're even in great elementary school districts like the Mary Munford district or Fox or areas like that, that believe that the only thing to do in a town like this is to spend something like 25 grand a year to send your kid to St. Christopher's or St. Catherine's or collegiate because that ship has sailed. The schools are already derelict and I'm not going to put my kid uh, on track to kind of be a test case to, to, you know, yes, Thomas Jefferson might be a great school in 10 years, but 
call me when it becomes a good school, right? I don't want my kid to be a, an experiment on that. But people who are willing to go K through 12, spend $25,000 a year after tax, and then they, they a lot of them say, I should be able to get some of this rebated as a voucher. And then you're asking me to you're asking me to be hit up more so I could help kids in, in North Church Hill or Gilpin Court. What do you say to people like that? There's a nimbyism to yeah, it that's in inherent. Short, in short, I say, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Because I believe that our destiny as a city, and frankly our destiny as a country, is wrapped up in the extent to which we take ownership over all of our children collectively. And when we only look out for our own, so to speak, we are in essence turning our backs on having a truly just, equitable, and frankly prosperous city. We will never be a truly great city, a truly prosperous city, without a great school system for all children. And so I do make that argument to folks. Uh, you know, I, I to, to make it stark, I share this hypothetical, and I, I can't recall if I did it at the speech you were at, but um, imagine if the city council were able to pass a law today which said, if you have kids and you live in Richmond, you have to send them to the neighborhood elementary, middle, and high school, Richmond Public School. And you cannot leave the city. So just think about that for a moment. And then reflect on how long do you think it would take for tax increases or the right investments to be made to ensure that every school had all the resources that it needed to be successful? I'd put it at about five minutes. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jason Cameras. He's superintendent of Richmond Public Schools. Uh, trying to get a budget passed to modernize the schools and get emergency funding for various facilities. You know, you're talking about this idea, this counterfactual, that if the city council did kind of get behind this unanimous idea of you have to really own your local public school and you can't just have the option of flight. And, of course, that would get tied up and all yeah, sorts yeah, it's, of it's a not things. realistic but, but thought-provoking It's a great thought-provoking exercise. But what is it? Is it not in my backyardism or not my problemism? Because I also see parallels to it. I see wisps in the Flint water crisis, for mm. example. Why is that anybody's problem if the city you – know, and I think back to Flint. Michael Moore did his documentary, Roger and Me, in 1989 on Flint. This is a – this is a decaying town. Its dereliction has been decades in the making. You know, GM has left in so many ways. Uh, they've they've tried various things. The tax base just isn't there even to provide for, for water according to kind of federal parts per million lead standards. So things happen like lead in the water supply. Um, I guess it kind of ultimately speaks to the fact that that people see their neighborhoods and their subdivisions as their provinces and everything outside of that is kind of like that's your problem. Look, I, you know, I do think that is certainly part of it. I also think there's this group in the middle that um, cares. They're just suspicious that more money will actually do anything. Mm. And, you know, I think they have, as I articulated in my other column, some, some good reasons for that because they've seen money not be effective. Um, and so what I've tried to do is to illustrate the ways in which we are trying to be responsible and effective with the money that we have to show what 
we will be measured on um, so they can see progress. Because look, if the public invests more and they don't see anything get better, they should raise questions and they should push back. And I, and I welcome that. So there's that group in the middle that I really do want to try to invite into this conversation. And um, I fundamentally believe that turning Richmond Public Schools around is eminently doable with the right investment. And so one of my jobs I see is to fight the hopelessness, which has frankly um, just infected uh, the city when it comes to Richmond Public Schools. Yeah, I do see people are kind of resigned to it. If we're trying to recruit people to come to this town, that they might say that you're getting a cost of living improvement, say, over northern Virginia or Westchester, New York. But if you have to embed uh, $20,000, $25,000 a year into private schools because it's fait accompli that you're not going to send – apparently that is taken. It's already been codified that you don't want to send your kid to a public middle school. And and I I just want to say for all your listeners, um, we have lots and lots of great schools here and – um, I invite people to actually go visit the neighborhood elementary or middle school or whatever it may be. Um, I am often in living rooms or in meetings where people will talk about some of our schools um, as experts of all the reasons that they are not adequate, and yet they have literally never stepped foot into some of these schools. And um, I think the reality is far different from what many people believe. And so part of our issue is just fighting a perception problem. Um, and you know, part of it is fixing the underlying real issues, making sure it's rigorous, making sure every student is safe every moment of the day and all those things, which obviously we have to take off the table. But um, some of it is just the narrative that has just been so ingrained in people's minds about Richmond Public Schools. Talk to me about your first, say, 90 days on the job, 100 days on the job, the tour that you took. I followed on social media some of the <laughs> photos you took of bathrooms, yeah. for example, that uh, you wouldn't expect to see that in, in public schools. There must be a, a public safety standard to it, or you would think that there's a maintenance budget to replace doors and, and bathroom stalls, but all of this stuff is kind of left to empty coffers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I took a lot of heat for posting some of those pictures. I think it was in my first few weeks on the job, but when I visited schools, I always ask kids two things um, because they're the best source of information in a school system. One is what do you love most about your school? And invariably kids talk about their teachers and their friends and things of that nature. And then I ask them what would make your school even better? And I have to tell you, in just about every school that I was at, whether you're talking to a five-year-old or a 15-year-old, they said, fix the bathrooms because they were broken or they um, don't have supplies or whatever the case may be. And so some of them took me on tours of their bathrooms. And um, I started posting some of those pictures because it's unconscionable. It's 2019 in the United States of America. There is no reason that kids should have to go to a bathroom with missing doors on stalls, sinks falling off the wall, tape dispensers hanging on by one nail, on paper dispensers, um, it's it's just unbelievable, and um, and so yeah, there's a lack of funding to address all those things. So one of the things we did was try to do a blitz on some of our bathrooms to fix it. We got some private donations to help with that, and I'm deeply appreciative of that. The business community pitched in too, but look, this to me feels like this is just the basics. This is the stuff government should be taking care of. 
Um, and, and that's why we've been advocating so hard for these additional dollars. So I, I heard a rumor that Richmond Public Schools is a big buyer of ice. Uh, for <laughs> yes, a funny, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's a sad. Yeah, for uh, we have some of these very old chillers uh, to cool our schools, which are basically you have big blocks of ice, they, you blow air over it, and that creates cool air, huh. which is uh, mid-20th century technology, if that. It's incredibly inefficient, costly, not environmentally friendly, um, and uh, but that's the reality in some of our schools. And so upgrading those uh, chillers and some of our boilers that are 60, 70 years old as well um, is absolutely critical. Talk to me about the public-private partnership things. I'm struck, for example, by this budget, which is, is very fluid and it's very contentious, the LeVar Stoney, Mayor Stoney's proposed budget, um, has a 50 cent a pack proposed cigarette tax, which is by right. itself controversial in, Here in the Richmond, capital yes. of big tobacco. <laughs> Altria is looked at as a as a very charitable company. They have their name on the theater. If you go to the Altria website, you think that it's a charity company first and foremost, that it's a foundation yeah. and not the biggest cigarette company in the country. But uh, they do send people to these city council events in red shirts saying no cigarette tax. It's like you're yeah. going to have to wrest it from their hands. Uh how is, the, how is that, that you kind of have to deal with them and, and they pride themselves on helping education and culture and everything, but then when it comes to a tax that might normalize the tax rate on cigarettes here and that would be a huge infusion to the school on an operating budget basis, there's sure. so much pushback. Yeah, well, look, Altria has been very generous to the city and to the school system, and I appreciate that, and I've said that publicly. Um, but I also think a cigarette tax makes a lot of sense, and I will continue to say that very publicly too. It is incontrovertible that the best way to curb smoking is to make smoking more expensive. That is a well-researched public health fact, and um, it is also well known that smoking kills. So the more that we can do to curb the use of cigarettes, I think the better off we are as a community, as a city, as a country. And so I, I think that is an important step for us to take. It, it also is a revenue generator. Yes, it is likely a declining revenue generator, and that's okay. Um, but if there is revenue to be made at this point, I think that makes sense as well. And they're not slamming you or pillaring you for proposing this? I mean, in the grand scheme of their profits, <laughs> which are outsized, by the way, even if it's a declining business, it's kind of a symbolic line in the sand. They came here, they left New York. And they're saying you're going to have to pry this tax from our cold, dead hands. Like, why do you think there's so many 7-Elevens in Richmond? Why do you think it's a smuggling capital of the eastern seaboard? Because the smokes are so cheap. Yeah. Look, um, I, you know, I continue to believe that um, that this is the right thing to do. It's the right thing for Richmond. It's the right thing for our kids and families. And and so I'm going to keep saying it. I will also keep saying that I appreciate the, the um, philanthropy that Altria has done. And... I don't see any reason why both can't be true, why this city can't join the ranks of just about every other city in America with um, some taxation on cigarettes and I'll try to continue to contribute. Uh, what is going on uh, with a lot of busing? And on the flip side of that, some of the magnet programs, the desired schools, at least in Miami where I grew up, they'd be put in more uh, downtrodden schools to encourage wealthier families to send their kids, say, to IB or the leadership magnet program, or people who wanted to be in a biology program. Does that work in a city like Richmond? One, do we still well, bus people on mass? Uh, no. I mean, we have um, 
We have a couple of specialty programs where there is some busing to get kids to those programs, but not busing in the sense of the uh, desegregation policies of, of the 60s and 70s. Um, one of the things, though, that we do want to do and as part of our plan is to create um, more really exciting theme-based programs at our high schools. Because right now, a lot of our comprehensive high schools, um, frankly, are just not providing either the the rigor of instruction or, frankly, um, the excitement that high school can be if you um, offer really interesting programs. So we're talking about a STEM high school, a performing arts high school, maybe even an international affairs high school where we send kids abroad for a bit and they take languages. Um, so I believe these are the kinds of things that would um, keep more families, attract more families, and actually help us diversify the student body within our, our high schools. In your experience and in kind of canvassing your teachers and former students, what are the levers that most work, the interventions, the, you know, if I'm if I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or a bar mitzvah or something and say, let walk me through those first three, four years of elementary school. What what makes the real difference? Is it immersion? Is it reading? I mean, if there's one thing, if if you know you take that city council factual, if they write you one check for one directed earmark, yeah. What is the silver bullet if there is one? There is no silver bullet. And I think one of the problems we have in education is that we kind of jump from one shiny object to the next. Um, and what ends up happening is a lot of money gets invested over here, and then you jump to the next thing, and money gets pulled and invested over there. And kids and teachers, as a result, feel whiplash, and you don't see the progress you want. And so I'm a firm believer in um, rather than trying to find the holy grail, just find something or use something that is really good, but just implement it and stick with it really, really well. I will say, having said all that, nothing beats ensuring that kids can read on grade level. It is the fundamental gateway skill for school and life. And so one of the big investments, if this budget goes through, is big, big investments in early literacy uh, so that every RPS student is reading on grade level when they lead the third grade. And the third grade is really pivotal because that is really when kids kind of shift from learning to read to reading to learn. Mm. And so it affects everything that comes after it. We also know that kids who don't read on grade level by the time they're leaving third grade are four times as likely to not finish high school. So that is a true... Um, kind of gateway measure. It's a real matter of equity for our kids. And so that is one of the biggest investments that we're making. Well, the real raw material you're dealing with, and this is a parent's two kids who finished preschool, is who is coming into that kindergarten program? Was there daycare? Was there structured daycare? Was it an aunt watching after someone? Is there any modicum of literacy? It's it's all over the map. And you, you can't control anything that's pre-K. I mean, the, does the public school system go out and push for extended programs that, that kind of reach into super early childhood? Yeah, well, you know, I have also uh, – part of our strategic plan is to increase preschool down to three-year-olds, um, which a lot of jurisdictions do. For example, in D.C., where I was before, we had universal um, three-year-old and four-year-old preschool. That makes a huge difference. But there are programs in existence, for example, Early Head Start which works with children um, very young, um, all the way up through preschool. Um, But obviously, there's not enough seats for all the kids in Richmond. 
that being said, I'm hopeful at the state level, this is something where if we have different leadership in the assembly, there will be more investment in. Um, there is no better investment when it comes to student outcomes and long-term life outcomes than quality early childhood education. This is one of the best research things in education. You have higher graduation rates, lower teen pregnancy rates, higher employment rates, lower incarceration rates, everything gets better when you have high-quality early childhood the education. The thing I struggle with, Jason, though, is how, how do you control for the reality at home? If a mother is working, if, a, if an aunt is helping out, if an older sibling, I mean, you have latchkeyism clearly that's rampant in elementary school, but I can't imagine, you know, my children at age two or three not having us intensely involved. But I do see people in service industry jobs that are taking a bus across town, transferring on buses to make it to Walmart or Absolutely. Target or a food court in a mall who happen to leave a child with a friend. And education is kind of an afterthought in that. Or structures and well, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, daycare. It's just getting somebody to watch the kid, which um, is hard enough in and of itself, right? Um, if you're just trying to, if you miss that bus to get that job at that minimum wage company, you might lose that job and then lose your house, and so that is the reality. You can't control for that. All you can do is respond to it. We get children every day who walk through the door that have all kinds of different levels of preparation and support. Um, but they're going to show up tomorrow again. And so basically you're left with a choice. Throw up your hands and say, we can't do anything because of all of this. Or roll up your sleeves and do everything we can. And so I'm in the roll up your sleeves and do everything we can. But it's why we need to over-invest in kids and in families where there isn't the time or resource to provide the kind of home supports that other kids get. And it's why this really comes down to equity and justice for all kids. I got to ask you, because it probably happens way too often, how often do <laughs> do people try to ask you about that season of The Wire? <laughs> I've actually never seen Get out! I swear to you. It seems to be most I, people's I education I, about I, the educational system. I, I'm, I think I'm the last person in America. I never watched The Wire. And the kid who wanted to try but fell off the rails and everything. And sadly, it took uh, you know, a series on HBO to open yeah. people's eyes to the fact that, no, you know, equal opportunity and equal protection under the Constitution don't mean the same thing. Yeah. Again, this goes back to my initial query is that, uh, you know, when you have – you look back to the 1860s and uh, – citizenship and everything that was codified. And yes, after you traverse Jim Crow and structural racism, and then there's de facto racism, at some point, isn't the only equalizer a kind of federal presence that says, you know, every child must have this provided out of the gate? Because if you leave it up to states, again, if I take you to Oklahoma and there's a fiscal crisis there, if I take you to Massachusetts and it's not that case there, there are so many different variables that you get 50 times a thousand different variables. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the ways that you can equalize is exactly what you said, more investment at the federal level to make sure that where there are those disparities, um, they are addressed. And, you know, we have made uh, steps in that direction uh, with Title I and, and other things, but there's so much more that, that needs to be done on that front. Absolutely. You get banter every now and then about um, banishing, banning the Department of Education. <laughs> I mean, no, some, some, sometimes people inveigh up against Big Bird and sure, Sesame sure. Street and whatnot. Why yeah. is that such a lightning rod? 
Well, I think it's a lightning rod for in conservative circles. I don't. Well, why is it? Oh, I think it is perceived as a federal overreach on what is a state or local issue from uh, from their perspective. Um, and I just um, I just fundamentally disagree with that. I can't think of anything that is more um, fundamental to our, frankly, um, national security and our um, living up to our aspirations, our ideals as a country than, than public education. What does DOE have to do with you on a typical basis? I mean, it seems like you're much. fairly autonomous here. <laughs> Not very much. I mean, uh, you know, the DOE sets very high level policy, things like the, um, you know, Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which sets standards for, you know, testing and things of that nature. But the majority of governance of schools falls to states and localities. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Jason Cameras, Richmond Public Schools superintendent for two years running already? Uh, oh, no. One and a half years? Uh, about one and uh, two months. I have to ask you, going <laughs> back to your experience, and, and uh, I went back to my 20th college reunion last year, and all these people who worked at Teach for America who found it so gratifying, and especially in the wake of the Great Recession, and suddenly it was everyone's new normal to be jobless and living with their parents again. It was a very desired thing to have to go out there and be involved. Why is why isn't this something that can be scaled more to get to tap into that enthusiasm and that willingness to travel and pull up their sleeves of the fresh college grad, um, you know, and, and putting that putting that restive human capital to work to kind of fill in so many of the gaps that we have in the system that's left to states and localities. I always wonder about why there's any bottleneck in the Teach for America system. Well, I mean, it's, you know, not for everyone. Not everyone is meant uh, to be a teacher and um, is not prepared to make that kind of a commitment. Um, but I also think, you know, there are just some structural problems with uh, the teaching profession. Um, we frankly, let's just take Virginia, for example. Virginia pays uh, about $10,000 below the national average for teachers. So um, it's just incredibly hard to attract folks um, to come to the profession. And then on top of the pay, um, you know, working conditions are tough when you're working in buildings that are 100 years old and lose heat and lose air, just like it's tough for the kids, it's tough for our teachers too. And then you layer on top of that, we ask so many different things of teachers, um, often without providing the supports that are necessary. So it is a brutally difficult job. Now, I will also say it's the best job I've ever had. Um, it's the most fun and most rewarding job I've ever ha had. But um, it is to do it well is exceedingly challenging, particularly in a high poverty environment like Richmond. And so um, we are not doing a lot of the things that would make it more attractive um, for young people across the country to go into the profession. In your most whimsical moment, do you think about maybe debt forgiveness, other programs, scholarship programs that are kind of hard hardwired into this kind of giving back? That the, yeah, the absolutely. Service economy. I mean, you could think of all kinds of things. Um, you know, tax credits, housing. Uh, credits, um, debt forgiveness, um, higher pay, um, all kinds of things that can make it more attractive uh, to go into the teaching profession. Absolutely. It's amazing. If I gave you a nickel for every burnt out corporate attorney, I mean, it's almost <laughs> become a trope. Eight years after the fact, partner track, uh, you know, two divorces, 
uh, prostate problems, everything, suddenly decides wants to go into public schooling. And like, you did not have to go and get a $150,000 law degree to do this, that you could have done it out of college. Yeah. But it took them that kind of vision quest to realize that in a search for meaning or maybe my penance, I need to go back and help people. Yeah, well, I think, you know, a lot of people from the outset think I've got to do one of these jobs that I think is quote unquote right thing to do, whether it's become a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, because that was what the family expected of you. Um, and I think folks find out a couple of decades into their career, often this isn't who I am and what I was meant to be doing. Um, and so I do think getting more people to uh, spend time exploring whether teaching is something that is their passion would be incredibly helpful uh, for the profession. Absolutely. Could you talk to me about this budget proposal and the various moving parts? I mean, it's never yeah. been easy. There's always been a certain level of distrust and dysfunction and city council and various agendas. And you saw how hard it was uh, for one council member, outgoing council member, to get a, a smaller tobacco tax pushed last year to help the schools. Um, you have the mayor behind you. Oh, yeah. In this case. And yeah. I, I imagine that you were recruited in knowing that, listen, if I'm going to come in and roll up my sleeves and move south of the Mason-Dixon line, <laughs> that you understand that this is not just going to be uh, window dressing for three, four years, no. and then we skedaddle out of town. No. Um, look, this is really, I believe, a bold budget that the mayor has put forth. It fully funds our ask for next year. And to my knowledge, that has never been done. Um, and so what is our ask? $18 million additional in operating revenue. That's the money to pay teachers and buy computers and curricula and stuff like that. And $19 million to help fix our facilities. And that goes back to the bathrooms we talked about and the boilers and the AC and whatnot. Uh, but to do that obviously requires revenue. And so as we discussed the 50 cents per pack on cigarettes and also a real estate tax hike from – not really a hike. It's a restoration of the rate it was before the recession from $1.20 back to $1.29. Um, and so, yeah, I really do appreciate the mayor's leadership on this. It's, um, you know, it's not the politically easy thing to do to go and put this forth. So what happens, though, in terms of, of, of self-sustaining carrying capacity? Administrations change. People move on. They run yeah. for other offices. If, an, if a more conservative administration comes in or if people suddenly say, well, that didn't work. It was only the 10th proposal. And you're opening up these these operating budgets and these capital budgets to cost cuts in the future, right? It's not self-sustaining. It's not well, like, I mean, the gentrification of Churchill will help the lot of schools in Churchill and people kind of, you know, insourcing their kids as opposed to sending them out. Sure. Uh, but but absent that, is this just a, a, a permanent kind of tug of war between uh, the downtrodden neighborhoods and, and the more well-to-do suburbs and exurbs? Well, I do think, you know, part of the way to bridge that divide, in fact, I think probably the best way to have to bridge that divide is is to provide better education. And the more that we do that, uh, the less likely we are to have this, um, frankly, as the mayor has said, permanent underclass that Richmond has created through policy over the years. And so, um, you know, what I also really appreciate is by creating these new revenue sources, it is sustainable. Right? This is not a one-shot deal, but this money would be there every year going forward. And that is really critical to our ability to kind of see the work through because, look, if I've learned anything in, in you know almost 25 years in education, it's stuff takes time. We did not get where we are in one year, and we're not going to get out of it in one year. It's going to take time step by step to build 
the kind of school system I think we all want. Where is it working? Um, These kind of novel approaches, maybe you bring in corporations, town and gown relations, experiment with enrichment, non-traditional tracks, maybe uh, universities to get involved. Where is somebody kind of made four out of one plus one? I mean, I think there are a number of cities around the country that are trying to do innovative things. Um, I think certainly D.C. uh, was was doing a lot of interesting work. Denver, uh, Nashville, um, Oakland. Um, a number of places um, that I've had an opportunity to visit and see what folks are doing. And, you know, there's no uh, there's no silver bullet in education, as we said, but there's also no one pathway for every city. Every city is different, has different politics, different students, different dynamics. And so you kind of got to learn the best of what folks did and see what works here and what doesn't. I find it interesting with some of the more millennial homesteaders who come here and end up in places like, you know, you might call it the Museum District or Malvern Gardens. And suddenly it's like, well, the elementary school is great, but what Thomas Jefferson High? We need to we need to activate the parents and suddenly own Thomas Jefferson High and have campaigns to replace the computers and everything. And um, there is a spirit to kind of people like we're in it for the long haul. We're putting down an anchor, and we need to own this. And I wonder uh, uh, to what extent that's going to cross racial lines. That's going to be all of us are in it together. It's not just because we came to this gentrifying neighborhood and our kids are going to go through the system. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, that yeah, it actually yeah. builds a bridge and something that's permanent and sustaining. I'm struck by this um, in, in that we're going to have her as a future guest, Jane Cooper, mm. and the talk that was around, um, was it uh, West Hampton Elementary on Patterson Avenue? Yeah. I mean, I passed that for years not knowing that it was a civil rights <laughs> landmark or the Westwood track was a terribly segregated yeah. place, and now it's very gentrified. And the parents who are moving in, a lot of them from Northern Virginia, a lot of them from Charlottesville, a lot of them from the Charlotte area are saying wow, you've left this school in such dereliction. Um, we need to step up our game. Yeah. But I think this goes back exactly to our previous uh, uh, part of our discussion. I'm going to generalize here. A lot of the folks moving into the city, certainly not all, but a lot are young white families. And why is it that it takes young white families to suddenly raise a ruckus to address the very issues that have been undermining opportunity for black families for decades. The exact same issues that are now being raised in Church Hill from some of the white families that have moved in have existed for a long, long time. But because it didn't directly affect them, and I'm not saying this to shame anybody, this is just the reality, it was not the source of such advocacy and organizing and whatnot. And so I think all of that new interest is great and helpful. I want to make sure that it is done um, in collaboration with and respect for all of those families that have been there for so long who have been fighting this fight well before the breweries and restaurants showed up in Richmond. But that's the mercenary calculation, isn't it? That the white families that come in with disposable income with uh, experience in PTAs and involvement suddenly feel like they have skin in the game. Yeah, I mean, and and I want those families, and let me be clear, also there are middle and upper income black families too who have opted out of Richmond Public Schools for exactly the same reasons. So it's not entirely a white-black issue, um, but whoever it is, um, yeah, we need everyone to go all in, and we need when new folks are going all in, that they bring a level of respect and empathy 
for the folks who have been there and have been fighting this fight and to join them, not to take over for them. It's like the obverse of white flight. You don't want to be white stepping what? on toes. I yeah, don't know. I mean, <laughs> look, you know, the the – I'm hearing all sorts of things about it at TJ and at, at uh, in Churchill. Sure, you know people. You, you talk to people they're like, oh, look, I went to Proper Pie up in Churchill, and like you know, Westies, in the far west end, and then Reich are like, you went to Church Hill, right? What was right. that like? Right. Well, I mean, it's like, look at what's happened in Brooklyn, or look at what's happened, you know, in parts of DC or whatnot. Look, um, unless we are thoughtful, and planful, and respectful. You know, you could find America in the year, let's call it 2050, where inner city means white and wealthy and exurban means of color and less wealthy. And we need as a community to be really thoughtful about that if we are going to prevent that from happening and ensure truly diverse communities over the next several decades, if not century. I want to throw another anecdote at you. And again, to my dear listeners and everyone, I don't want to be indulgent, uh, but I, I, I want to see if, if this you know, prods some sort of other comment from you. The big skin in the game moment for me was when I came to this city and my son was at preschool age and uh, we went to the JCC preschool here and his teacher was African-American. And on the show and tell night that they had where everybody was encouraged to come in in their pajamas and share something that was meaningful in their family, Sharon Johnson, the teacher, shared uh, a dog-eared journal book documenting the ownership of her ancestors Mm. um, back into the mid-19th century. And as she said this, I remember I got lightheaded looking around the room. I said, wow, I'm an Iranian Jew. I'm an immigrant. My son is running around the room. Uh, This is in a Jewish preschool that's drawn all sorts of people from across the city in a class that's probably 80% white and not Jewish. Many of these white parents have had ancestors who were potentially slaveholders. And here they are kind of in a a, a true moment of, of, of fellowship and skin in the game with uh, the progeny of slaves. And I'm forced to try to reconcile that when I drive up and down Monument Avenue. And I asked her, like, what does Monument Avenue mean to me? And, and people here in their candid moments say, I think it's an insult. It's, it's, uh, it's an irritant to me that 100 years after this, that a symbol of revanchism exists. And then there are other people that I'm very friendly with who say, oh, tell people to get off the monument. It's not about the monument. Why don't you take care of your schools first and take responsibility as if there's an inverse correlation? My point Jason, is that there is a whole, uh, you know, subcutaneous racial reconciliation that has to happen in this city before it can even have a, an honest conversation about schools, that there are a lot of things that are kind of dusted aside to tradition or just sure. the way the things are. Yeah. And uh, I, I really struggle with that a lot. We try to progress ahead, but there's so many things that have kept us back over 200 years. Yeah, you know, someone once said to me, and I I think this is very true, Richmond is a city that wants change without changing. And um, I think that plays out, whether it's schools or Monument Avenue or whatever the case may be. Look, I find it offensive driving down Monument Avenue to see those monuments, and, and I think a lot of folks do. As you noted, to say, as has been said, Um, I think, at council that, oh, that's just a distraction from the schools. You're exactly right. Well, why can't we do both? Deal with the monuments and help support our schools. Um, And so I think often excuses are made to sort of 
move people's attention onto something else so we don't have to deal with the underlying issue. And the underlying issue is that, look, this city was built by enslaved human beings. That's just the truth. And um, we continue to deal with that fact every day, whether we want to admit it or not. And I think the more that we admit it, um, the more likely we are to take the steps necessary to repair for all the damage that was done from that. It said the church, school, and pool are the three most segregated areas in, you know, Richmond 155 years after the Civil War. Yeah. Um, I, and, you know— I, Why are private pools so big here? Why are churches—why is that the most segregated hour of the week? Why um, schools, what we said, 60-plus years after Brown v. Board? Yeah. And a lot of it's just chalked up to tradition. Yep, absolutely. So in the uh, seven minutes or so we have left, I leave it uh, open skate, free skate to you, <laughs> sir. Turn it around. Talk to me about your aspirations, the things you've learned here. You have you have the mic. Oh, wow. Um, that That is uh, quite a treat. Gosh. Um, I mean, I think one of the things I most want folks to know is how truly wonderful our students are. I lament the fact that um, our young people are frequently um, – they're just stereotyped in this city um, in ways that are just, uh, frankly, um, just so disappointing and disheartening to me. Um, I have been to every one of our schools multiple times. Um, I try to visit every single classroom I can. So I've probably met um, at least half of our kids. And 201, they are bright and creative and dynamic and resilient and funny and um, their hopes and dreams are no different than those of any other children I've ever met. And so I just want uh, the public to know um, how wonderful they are. And um, if you haven't had an opportunity to meet kids in Richmond Public Schools, I encourage you to do so, whether it's um, through mentoring or tutoring or um, participating in other activities with the young people in Richmond. Um, I believe the more the community um, has relationships with our young people, um, the better off we will be as a city. You can go up and down swaths of the Windsor Farms, um, you know, corridor, the, the, the historic Tony Carey Street River Road corridor, and not find an African-American family. How do you get people to, one, pay attention, and two, actually join you and hold hands and go up to North Churchill and Gilpin Court? Well, you know, I think it's by going to people and having honest and open conversations with them wherever they are. And so that's one of the reasons I do this thing called living room chats. I just go around the city um, to um, folks' homes. Um, typically, it's it's families of, of kids in Richmond, but not always. And I'm just interested in talking with people. What What's working? What's not? What are you hearing? Um, if you are frustrated, why? Let me see what I can do about it. And in fact, just earlier this week, I held my first trust town hall where I invited explicitly people who aren't in the game and who don't trust Richmond Public Schools because I want to hear from them. I I am certain we make no progress if we're not in dialogue with one another. Uh, I'm not um, naive. I don't think I'm going to convince everybody and I'm, I'm not going to um, line up every citizen to support this budget or any other initiative. But I know I won't have any chance of getting anybody across um, across that divide unless we're talking. And so I will continue to go to places and spaces where there are questions and hesitations about Richmond Public Schools um, to make my case. And I'm confident if we continue to do that, uh, we will be better off as a city.
Is there a part of you that wants to go back into the trenches and just teach? <laughs> yes, there are many days when I just miss teaching the immediacy of the work and just being around kids is very invigorating to me. So sometimes when I go and make school visits, um, I linger uh, too long and end up running behind. Um, but I, I could, you know, I could spend all morning um, sitting in morning circle in kindergarten or in a math class working on fractions. Um, I have to hold myself back from um, wanting to jump in and join the the instruction um, because it is what I what I love so much. And um, but I think having that as my north star and always thinking about kids and teachers, I think is what is really important. Take me back to your student from 1996. Where is he now? I'm sure you followed all of these people along yeah, the way. Yeah, I, I don't know where that young man is because he moved to North Carolina, um, I think like when he went into eighth grade, and so we lost touch. This was well before all the social media platforms. Um, but there is a small group of kids that I continue to stay in touch with, um, one of whom I'm very close to. He recently got married, and I got to go to his wedding, and they – um, bought a house in in Silver Spring, Maryland, and um, you know he's doing fabulously well. I think he's making like three or four times what I made when oh. I taught him, and um, he's uh, like a cybersecurity expert. And it's just been incredibly gratifying to see the long arc of that relationship, and and to see the trajectory that he is on now. And it it gives me hope, and it it reminds me of what is possible when we do this thing called education right and we really invest and we build the relationships that we can fundamentally create a more just and equitable America. And it's why, um, despite how hard and exhausting this job is, I, I know your listeners can't see it, but I have a smile on my face because I love it and I believe in it. And, um, and I'm hopeful that I'll be able to do it here in Richmond for a very long time. Closing comments, if you were to pitch a prospective teacher to come here in the kind of 30-second elevator pitch, give me your case. Well, because uh, if you want to be a great teacher like Rodney Robinson, the 2019 National Teacher of the Year, Richmond is a place to be. We have extraordinary young people who need wonderful teachers, and we are committed to helping you grow and become the best possible teacher. And... Um, and it's a really cool city, so come on down. Jason Cameras, can't thank you enough. Thank you. Jason Cameras, superintendent of Richmond Public Schools. He's also 2005 National Teacher of the Year, and he advised the first Obama campaign on education policy. You're always welcome back on the show. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch this show on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News. It's on Saturdays at 6, again Sunday nights at 8 p.m and on npr.org, and of course, on iTunes at link fullderadio.com. Rate us highly because I crave your validation. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.